It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guy's Guy's Radio. Your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guy's Guy's Radio. I find experts for you. I bring the information. You determine if it's right for you and if it can help elevate your experience. Guy's Guy's Radio. I've got a great show for you today. Did you know that... 60 plus million Americans suffer from some type of back issue, back problem, back pain, and 16 million of those are actually have chronic pain in the back. So that's, that's almost 10% of the population. So it's amazing that people have so many back problems in the U.S. and of course around the world. Could you imagine though, if you could learn five powerful steps to diagnose, understand, and treat your ailing back? Well, we've got the perfect guest for you today. His name is Dr. Jack Stern, and he's going to talk to us about his book called, very simply, Ending Back Pain. And I think you're really going to enjoy it because he's got a lot of good ideas about self-care and then what you need to do when you're qualifying specific doctors for back pain and the steps you should take uh, before uh, electing to have any surgery because that can be very serious, obviously. Even though the medical advances in Western medicine are, are exponential nowadays, you still want to be really careful before you undergo any type of surgery. So Dr. Stern will be here with us. We also have a fascinating uh, lady by the name of Elizabeth Ruggiero York. And before she contracted MS, multiple sclerosis, she was a pilot, a commercial pilot for one of the big airlines. And she's written a book called Flying Alone, and it's about her journey to learn how to fly and deal with the very uh, bro culture of pilots and how she navigated her way through there, how she learned how to fly all different types of planes, the inner workings of the commercial plane and flying business, working with small planes, medium-sized cargo planes, and eventually commercial airliners where she was uh, shuttling you know, passengers around all across the USA. And it's quite a struggle and quite a triumph by Elizabeth that she managed to achieve her goal before being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is a very serious disease. So she's going to get into that, her journey, and what she learned and what we can learn from that. So Guys Guys Radio, we've got a great show for you today. So very interested in that. So what's been going on out there? You know, when... uh, Kobe Bryant passed, uh, it was amazing. The next day, no matter where, I was in the gym and I kept turning the dial. There was some sports shows and then there was uh, CNN and Fox had uh, the impeachment on, but everything else, wall to wall, Kobe Bryant, great basketball player, one of the best of all time. And out here in Southern California, obviously he's legendary and an icon. It's amazing, though. I was just amazed that it was wall-to-wall coverage of him, and he's a basketball player. Um, Not saying that he did not contribute a lot and wasn't a significant individual in terms of teaching and learning, and he had his flaws, no doubt about it, and did some things that weren't considered so great, if you will. And I'm saying it gently. Um, It's still amazing that the media will just glom on to one particular story and just pound away at it. And it's just the way it is. So I determine uh, very carefully what type of media I want to consume and when, 
because you know, you're going to get fed what they want to feed you. And again, as I'm not saying there's anything wrong with learning all about Kobe's life. And he was a wonderful player and so much fun to watch. So, so, so much skill he had and what a competitor and a hardworking athlete also. But my point is really about the media zeroes in on one topic and that's what you're going to get. And so it's, I think, shows like Guys Guys Radio we bring you different topics, different stuff to learn because there's so much going on and there's so much information out there that we could learn, really learn a lot if we look beyond mass media and what they want to sell us, whether it's content or through the advertising. And believe me, I know because I worked in advertising in New York City for many years and it's, it's about selling you things that you probably don't need but you think you need. And it's all a psychological game that way. But I had a lot of fun in the business. I sold a lot of fun products. And, you know, we were never, when we were working in the business, we were never thinking how to trick people or anything like that. We were thinking about how to best position a brand to fill a need and a demand that consumers have. It's like nowadays, you have so many uh, organic products or non-GMO products out there. The only reason for that is consumers started demanding them. Otherwise, the corporations would just keep feeding us the same swill that they've been feeding us for many years until consumers stepped up and say, hey, I'm not sure your product's that good for me, and I want you to make it organic or I'm going to find an organic alternative to your brand. So good for consumers. So the point is we all have more power than we think we do, and the power is in making choices. So Guys Guys Radio, our first guest is Dr. Jack Stern. We're going to talk about ending back pain. Let's get to it. It's Guys Guy Radio. Welcome again to Guys Guys Radio. You know, on Guys Guys Radio, we like to bring information out there that's going to help people. That's what we're really all about here. And so I find experts in different areas, and maybe some of them have different points of view or bring new information or perspectives on uh, situations and uh, circumstances that we all encounter in our life. One of the things that so many of us have or know somebody who have, have experiences having some type of issue with your back. And so I have a very, very special guest. His name is Jack Stern. He's a medical doctor and a PhD at the Weill Cornell Medical College. He's got a new book. It's called Ending Back Pain, Five Powerful Steps to Diagnose and Understand and Treat Your Ailing Back. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Stern. He's board-certified surgeon specializing in spine neurosurgery, as well as the co-founder of Spine Options, New York's first and only facility committed to non-surgical care of back and neck pain. He's been on the forefront of back pain treatment and research for more than four decades, and he's helped tens of thousands of patients. Everybody from professional athletes to Catholic nuns have found relief. He lives and practices in White Plains, New York. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Dr. Stern. Robert, thanks for inviting me. Let's get right to it. Why is it that so many people have issues with their back. I personally don't. I stay in shape. I eat a good diet. And I'm wondering if uh, lifestyle is the biggest contributor or are there other factors? Is it hereditary, epigenetics or whatever? But why do so many people in our culture have back issues? That's a very complicated question. And I'll, I'll try to answer it uh, in a number of ways. 
Okay. Number one, I think there's a very strong genetic component to low back pain. So that if you ask most people who have low back pain, they'll tell you that there's a parent or a sibling who has low back pain. And I'm convinced, actually, that we will at some point, and I think we're very close to that, identify a gene that's associated with back pain. That's number one. Okay. Number two, it's also clear that folks who do heavy labor, athletes who um, have... I don't want to use the word abuse their bodies because I encourage people to exercise, but clearly it puts whatever puts significant stress on someone's back is bound eventually if you get old enough uh, to uh, create back pain. And um, I'd also say that I, and, and I make this point in the book over and over again, that I don't like the word back pain. As a physician, as a surgeon, back pain to me is really a meaningless term. Uh, it's a description. It's not a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And a physician who's, who wants to help people and possibly even cure people can't cure someone or alleviate their symptoms if you don't have a diagnosis. So I really am reluctant always to use the word back pain, even though it's clear that I used it in, as a title of my book because it's so um, ubiquitous a term. Mm -hmm. To me, always the most important thing in all, in all of this is making the right diagnosis. And I stress that again and again. So therefore, when you ask me the question of what's the most common cause of low back pain, um, I would say that there are at least six anatomical areas in your back that can cause back pain and it's incumbent upon the physician who's treating your back to try as best they can to identify which one of those what we call pain generators is the one that's causing your pain. All right. For the listener, what can they do? What can people do in their day-to-day -day lives, whether they're uh, involved in athletics or fitness or not? What can they do to best maintain as well as possible their lower back health? The answer is actually quite obvious. Number one, keep your weight in a normal range and exercise and particularly stretch there's much to be said about strengthening your core muscles. Uh, I always tell my patients to do that, uh, although there's not terrific evidence that having a very strong core really makes a difference. But I think those are the issues. Mm -hmm. And a little anecdote. So I see a lot of athletes. And I see a lot of runners. And it's clear that the most common cause of back pain in runners is their running shoes. Really? And most of the time you change their running shoes and their back pain goes away. And wow. that's not something that's intuitively obvious. That's, that's great. I, that's, that's, that's very interesting. So I have a theory on this. But that as, as we age, it's like I always look at the, some of the boxers and stuff where, you know, maybe they, they don't, they're not as fast as they get older or even a football quarterback, or whatever. They, they just get more savvy. Uh, and as, as we exercise, uh, you know, I'm a runner. So I, I, I can still go out there and I could, I could probably do a, another marathon, um, but I'm not going 
the last time I ran a marathon, my body said, don't do this anymore. <laughs> it was my third one. So I, so I haven't. But I, I still go out there and I put in, you know, eight, nine miles. And what I do, though, now is I really listen to my body. So if my body says, you're tired today, rest up, uh, I, I do that. But I, I haven't, and I'm in my 60s. And I have not had any back issues my entire life, and I still run. Is that odd? Am I a freak, or am I doing the right things? Am I luck of the draw? And what can people learn from how they exercise and how they manage their fitness, if you will? Well, first of all, I want to commend you for listening to your body, because most people, including myself, uh, don't do that. So uh, most of, I had a professor at Columbia always said, the body, the body has the answer. Mm-hmm. And by that, he meant that we don't listen to our bodies. We think even in our 60s or 70s, we're still young athletes, um, and we can do things we did when we were 20 and 30, and that's how we hurt ourselves. It's clear that our bodies, all parts of our body, age. When it comes to the spine, it means that there's significant disc degeneration, mm-hmm. which is actually the most common cause of back pain. The overwhelming number of people who have back pain, it's not from a herniated disc, it's not from a torn muscle, it's not from a strained ligament, it's because they have developed this degeneration, which is a normal part of aging. Now, you may be one of those lucky folks mm-hmm. who have this collagen in their discs, uh, uh, discs are made of collagen, and your collagen probably has not degenerated for your age, and it's probably a genetic. I would bet it's a genetic factor. And if I were to ask you, do you have any immediate relatives who have back pain? What would you say? Uh, I would say yes, but I th- my mom had back surgery way back in like the 60s or early 70s. And uh, she claimed she wrenched her back when she was raking leaves and, uh, and she immediately went and got surgery. And I don't think it went that well because she's always kind of been having a little bit of back issues since then. Um, but I don't know if that was degenerative or... Or, or even if she should have had surgery. And that, that brings up another point, doctor. What are the factors that a uh, patient, if you will, needs to go through? What's the checklist before determining, working with their physician, of course, if surgery is an option? What, what, are, what is your checklist and what should be your patient's checklist? Be? Well, I think the checklist should be the same for me as for the patient. Okay. So let me go through that checklist. Number one, pain that is intolerable and has a significant impact on the person's functionality. So if your back pain was so severe that you couldn't get to the studio today and couldn't record it, and that Mm -hmm. goes on for months and months, I would suggest you get it checked out, and you may be a surgical candidate. I don't know what the diagnosis would be, but we try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Number two, what we call... Uh, the alarming signs, and that is an individual who has back pain, but suddenly notices that they've got decreased sensation in their lower extremities. They've got decreased strength in their lower extremities. And lastly, someone who has noticed that they don't have the same control over their bowels or their bladder as they did before, which means something is dramatically wrong and pressing against the nerves causing an inability to to successfully control your bowels and your bladder and or pressing against the nerves that control sensation and strength Mm -hmm. and um, those are the patients i tend to see someone walks in and says 
you know, the common description is a drop foot, and I notice that they can't, that they have a drop foot, and you do an MRI, and you see that they have a herniated disc, usually at 045, and you wait a while, they don't get better. Clearly, if you don't operate on those folks, they won't get better, and they'll, they'll have a limp or will not be able to walk properly for the rest of their lives. Got it. Uh, so those are the keys that I think of when I suggest surgery to somebody. This is Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny, our special guest, Dr. Jack Stern. His book is Ending Back Pain, Five Powerful Steps to Diagnose, Understand, and Treat Your Ailing Back. Let me just throw you a little curveball here because I was talking to somebody in a business center where I live, and I, it turned out the guy came in and he had um, the blue uh, scrubs on. And I said, oh, what do you do? And he said he works with a, some back surgeons here where I live. And I'm like, oh, what, what are some of the issues that people have when they come in? He said, well... A lot of people are out of shape. So I, I guess my, my question to you is, uh, forgive me for not being articulate here, is w- w- why do you think people have these b- b- you know, back issues? Is it um, they're not managing their fitness? Is that they're too sedentary? Is it uh, you know, they're not managing how they age? Because I, I'm a boomer. I know a lot of boomers. Most of the boomer guys I know have the exact same lifestyle they did as they did 40 years ago. And to me, you have to adapt. You have to change. Like I'm sitting on a cushion right now that keeps me, you know, one of those kind of yoga type cushions that keeps me a little bit off balance. I've shifted from um, weights to swimming. I run less frequently. I don't run quite as far. I do cardio on the elliptical, but if I feel a little something in the hip, I don't do it anymore. What? I mean, I'm throwing a lot at you. Can you kind of unpack that? You just described all the things that I tell patients to do. Whether you learn that intuitively, whether you uh, read it somewhere, but you're doing all the things, and you're obviously fit. You're doing all the things to keep a healthy back. Walking um, also. So, yeah, walking. Those are all the things. you. And again, you okay. listen to your body. You switch from one activity to a less traumatic activity, but an activity that still maintains your cardiac output, which I think is very important as we as we mm-hmm. reach our sixties mm-hmm. plus. So you you you're like a poster child, and I haven't met you before, but you're you're a poster child for what to do for a healthy back. Okay, well that's good to hear. I I think it's about listening to your body and being being consistent and adding more stretching and stuff. So I assume. Let me just throw a quick couple of quick ones at you. Swimming, good or bad? Perfect. Okay. Because uh, it's non-gravitational. Mm-hmm. If you swim enough, you exercise almost every muscle group in your body. And number two, it's great cardio. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it really swimming, is. Swimming is, in my opinion, I think swimming is the best exercise. Okay. How about um, yoga? As I said before, in order to maintain uh, your muscles, your ligaments, and your tendons limber, you need to stretch. Yoga is a great way of stretching your stretching your muscles and, and strengthening your back. Any uh, thoughts on supplementation for maintaining a healthy back? So everyone has tried different supplements, mostly uh, fibrocartilage supplements, uh, things that promote cartilaginous uh, growth. And there's some evidence 
in the literature, and by the way, when it comes to my book, it's not Jack Stern's opinion. I go through the literature. Mm -hmm. so I write something, it's based on a, an article in the medical literature that I quote. So I, do, I would do the same thing here. There's some evidence that would indicate that these supplements help in, in joints, for example, the knee or possibly the shoulder, but mm -hmm. there's no evidence that it, these supplements are beneficial for low back pain. Okay. Let me throw another curveball at you. Uh, what I neglected to uh, mention before, when I was talking to this gentleman who worked in the medical field, working with surgeons, he said, oh, you're interviewing somebody? I said, yeah. He said, oh, Dr. Sarno. I said, no, 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 Dr. Stern. And uh, the name Sarno comes up with, uh, you know, back issues all the time. And I, I, since I've never had a bad back, I'm familiar with his book. I don't know exactly what it says. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on his point of view versus your point of view? Are you guys simpatico? Is it completely different? Um, I, if it's like something you don't want to talk about, I understand. I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm just throwing it out there. So Dr. Sarno, who I should say a blessed memory because he passed away a few years ago, actually was, about, was going to write the, um, the forward to my book, but he was so ill at the time that he couldn't do it. Okay. So I would send, I sent my daughter to Sarno because she had back, back mm -hmm. pain. And Sarno's entire philosophy was that um, you can control, I mean, this is a lead into the conversation we had a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. She uh, had a feeling that, um, he had a feeling that for most people, and I would agree with this, are not surgical candidates, that conservative therapy and especially control, uh, controlling your mind over your pain mm -hmm. will, will uh, benefit the individual strongly. In your book, you discuss diagnostics, understanding, uh, treating your back, ailing back. What's the number one tip you would give our listeners in terms of just uh, self? See, my, my opinion is that the consumer we have a responsibility to take care of ourselves. And when we have issues, of course, we go in for checkups and stuff, but when we have an issue, then we see the right physician and the physician will take care of things. But it's not the physician's responsibility to live our lives. In the year 2020, where doctors have less and less time to spend with patients, mm -hmm. you have to be an advocate for yourself. And I think that's what you were saying a minute ago. Yeah, exactly. So what does that mean for somebody who's got back pain? I, I advise, and again, I review this in the book, I advise mm -hmm. that you come into your doctor, and this is not just for back pain, it's for any ailment. You come in with what I call a timeline. My symptoms for X, Y, or Z started three weeks ago. They were better for a week. It got worse again. I tried A, B, and C. Uh, I went to see this doctor who told me this, because if you prepare a timeline at home in the comfort and the quiet of your own environment, listen, everybody, even I get nervous when I go to my doctor, you know, it's sure. just the way mm -hmm. it is. And they're always rushing. So what I feel strongly about is prepare a timeline so you can put it on the doctor's desk and say, this is my history. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm experiencing now. And this is what I need help with. Got it. Um, great, great advice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last question. Um, stenosis 
seems to be very prevalent uh, these days. What is it and uh, what do people need to know about it? So I am actually a, a stenosis sufferer. That means that my spinal canal over the years has narrowed from osteoarthritis. The, the analogy I frequently give is when you travel in the world, sometimes you look down the drain of the sink and you see that there's this calcium deposit and the water goes down more slowly. Does that mm -hmm. help yes, yes. Yep. yes. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens with spinal stenosis. You develop osteoarthritic changes. Um, the ligaments get um, thicker. So the nerves and the vessels, the blood vessels that go to the nerves, have much less room. Okay. Listen, you, there's so much here, and you're really doing great work, and uh, we're very appreciative. I wanted to squeeze as much information out of you for our listeners, so uh, thank you for bearing with me uh, with these questions, Dr. Stern. Okay, so our special guest has been Dr. Stern, Jack Stern, MD, PhD, the name of the book, Ending Back Pain, Five Powerful Steps to Diagnose, Understand, and Treat Your Ailing Back. This is Robert Manny, Guys Guys Radio. Doctor, where can they, uh, our listeners find out more about you and pick up your book? Amazon.com, and my website is Dr. Jack Stern, one word, drjackstern.com, so pe people can actually contact me and ask me questions and send me their, their x-rays and stuff like that, and I, I love doing that, and I contact right. people, and we see if we could find out what's the matter with you. Well, thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. You're a real guys guy. Thank you for your service, doctor. It's been a pleasure. There's never been a better time for men to be whoever they want to be. Yet it's never been less clear who men really are. Guys Guy Radio, starring author Robert Manny, is on KCAA every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Whether it's relationships, sex, wellness, or spirituality, join Robert as he interviews the experts about how men and women Women can be at their best. Guys Guy Radio. Better men, better world. Hey, welcome to Guys Guys Radio. Here we have a special guest. Uh, her name is Beth Ruggiero York, and she's a kind of an interesting person. She's done a lot, and I want to have a, a fearless female on the show because uh, she's had to go through a lot of challenges in her life and career. And I think it's important that guys, particularly nowadays, listen up to what the ladies have to say because they've really gotten a, a kind of a raw deal and everything they've accomplished, they've had to work, in many cases, twice as hard as guys have to be able to be accepted in their chosen field. In this case, Elizabeth uh, chose to be a pilot, a commercial airline pilot. She worked her way all the way up to be a pilot with TWA. She's also uh, quite the Renaissance person. She's a Chinese translator and a professional photography instructor for the Arizona Highways Photoscapes. She's written a book about her life experience called Flying Alone. And uh, it was written a couple of years ago, but it's a very interesting memoir. And it's about her path to learning how to fly and uh, kind of the camaraderie that takes place between the pilots and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of warts and all story. And then she got diagnosed with MS. So all kinds of stuff happened to her and she managed to make her way through. And as they tell us in the book, which I think is the great piece of advice, make sure that uh, you're flying the airplane, the, the airplane's not flying you. And I think that applies to life in general also. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Beth Rosario York. How are you, Beth? I'm doing fine. How are you? 
I'm fantastic. And thank you so much for being on the show. Let's start right at the beginning. Um, your inspiration to become a pilot. I think it's like the coolest job in the world. I know my, my dad was in business for many years, and I, I asked him uh, in the latter stages of his life, if you had to do it again, what would you do? He said, be a pilot. And I've always thought that would be a, a great lifestyle. Reading your book, it's like, wow, there's a lot to learn, a lot to prepare. And it's a, qu quite the cast of characters that uh, who are in the aviation industry. So why don't you tell us about your inspiration and kind of how you got your start learning to fly? Well, it's um, it was kind of spontaneous. Uh, when I went to college in uh, 1980, I majored in uh, East Asian studies and Chinese language, which I absolutely loved, studied abroad. And then, then when I graduated, it was 1984. And the thoughts of, of a career, I, I hadn't really ever given that much thought. And of course, in those early years, there wasn't much. It's not like it is today. So I uh, realized that uh, I didn't want to pursue a business degree or a law degree so that I could use my Chinese. And I said, well, what else do I want to do? And then I remembered a, a dream I had, a living dream, to um, learn to fly from years prior. And I decided that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Again, the name of the book is Flying Alone, and it's a memoir. So um, you wrote this book uh, kind of back in the 90s, I think. Why are you bringing it out again now? How is that all kind of working together for you? Well, I wrote it um, in the 90s, early 90s, after I couldn't fly anymore because I lost my medical certificate. And I never published it at that time. I, okay. I knew at some point I would, but it sat in a box. Okay, so let's talk about the specifics then, the nuts and bolts. Uh, if, you, if somebody out there, one of our listeners said, I, I would like to learn how to fly, what, what are the steps they need to take, not to become a, a pilot for a Delta or you know big commercial uh, airline, but just to become certified? What are the steps you have to take, and how long does it take, and how much does it cost the average person? Well, it's, it's not a lot different from uh, when I was learning in the 1980s. Uh, you go to the local airport. There's usually a flight school at, well, most local airports. And you uh, sign up for lessons, tell them you're interested. The only thing that is very different from when I was doing it is the price. Uh, back then, um, you know, it's an hourly price, but I, I, and I, have, I don't know what it is now, but back, back then it was $40 an hour wet, which means $40 an hour for your instruction and um, wet meaning including the gas. Okay, so you have to start out, though. Uh, you start with ground school. Where I guess you learn all uh, the different uh, nomenclature, and you have to take a lot of tests and stuff, and then you have to do flying time and instrument training and all of that. How does it, just quickly, how does that all kind of come together? Well, the, the private pilot's license is the first step, and for that, yes, you need ground school. And um, you go to ground school simultaneously while you're taking lessons, uh, flying lessons. And uh, at 40 hours, if you are, if your instructor feels you are competent, then you can go on to take the exam. There's an air exam and a written exam. Okay. How long does it take overall if you, you know, you, you kind of stick with it and you're pretty steady? What's, your, what's the usual uh, amount of time it takes and the kind of if you rolled it into today's price, what do you think it would cost? Just ballpark. Well, I'm going to guess about... $5,000. And um, once again, that's 
that's a guess because I haven't been in the uh, right, that right, right. But the uh, time, it depends on how how aggressively you want to pursue it, and then it uh, can be a few months, can be a year. Um, it's you know, can you do, do you fly once a week with your instructor or do you fly five days a week with your instructor? Right. Okay. So uh, what is the uh, most challenging part of the training? I've got to think when you kind of, uh, you know, you're up there in the air and then it's foggy out or something you can't see and you're flying using the instrument panel. That must be pretty tricky. Well, Robert, it is. And that's for the instrument rating. But it, uh, the instrument rating, you don't have to have it to be a private pilot. That's the next step after the private pilot's license. So you get your instrument rating, and uh, it's, it's challenging in the sense that it's a whole different world of flying. But at the same time, it's exciting and it's fun. Now, is it, uh, what's the toughest part when you're flying? Is it to uh, take off, to land, to uh, navigate turbulent weather? What, what, what are the challenges for most people? Well, there's, there are so many, but um, once you're comfortable and confident in, in the airplane and your skills, landing is not a problem. It's actually you, you enjoy it. When it's really hard to land is when you have a severe crosswind. Uh, and the same for taking off. If you're on a short field, a short strip, and you need to get off in a hurry, uh, that's, that's challenging. But again, they're all challenges that uh, I think all pilots enjoy. Now, uh, is it easier, in your opinion, to fly a smaller plane, uh, a mid-sized plane, like a cargo plane or something, or a commercial airliner? I think uh, the most challenging is probably when you're just starting in a single engine airplane. The airliners, once you learn the skills for the plane that you're going to be in, it's um, it's so, and in today even more so, so uh, much uh, done for you, the mm -hmm. autopilot and the electronics. Okay, how important is it to have a, uh, a good uh, communication skill so you can speak with the uh, air traffic controllers? It's something you learn while you're a private pilot, and there's a there's certain terminology and jargon that you have to learn, and uh, you you learn it through the process of getting your private, and uh, and then it becomes second nature. Mm -hmm. What was the biggest surprise when you were learning? That did you have an aha moment? Like I didn't expect this. Oh, that's a challenging question. Um, I think that. Uh, for me, in my own experience, my instructor, after I got my private pilot's license, and I tell about this in the book, how he uh, decided that I needed to learn how to do some aerobatic uh, movements like rolls mm -hmm. in, in the airplanes I learned to fly in. And they, those planes weren't made to do that. Uh, right. He was kind of a rogue, though. <laughs> okay. 
So, okay, let's get into that because uh, the book is called Flying Alone. This is Robert Manny, Guys Guys Radio. Our special guest is Beth Ruggiero York, and her memoir is called Flying Alone about her challenges and her victories in, t- in terms of becoming a commercial pilot, uh, being a woman, and also uh, being diagnosed ultimately with MS. So before we get into the MS, um, you, the, your instructors and your comrades, if you will, uh, flying, it seemed like there was a lot of uh, interpersonal relationships going on. Uh, if you don't mind my saying, there was a lot of drinking described in the book. And I'm wondering, <laughs> is that was just your band of friends or is like, is that part of the, you know, in, in the boating, you know, when you go out in commercial boats, uh, you know, fishing boats and stuff like that, people talk about, oh yeah, everybody drinks all the time and stuff. But I didn't think of that for flying yet in your book there was a discussion of people not not fl- drinking while they were flying per se but a lot of drinking going on in the off hours i uh, yes that's honestly it's that's the way it is and and it's off hours um you know, pilots most pilots respect that you don't drink while you're flying or drink before you're flying etc and it's uh, in that sense it doesn't affect the actual flying but yeah, it, it's a, it was a crazy world. Um, it, it was funny because that was in the years just before the, the TV show Wings. I don't know if you remember right. that. Yeah, I remember, out. yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking before the show came out, oh, this would make an amazing sitcom. Just all the stuff that went on in the flight school and then also the companies I worked for. But um, yeah, it was a... Uh, there were a lot of there was and I don't there's no there's no lack of drinking even in the airlines but the pilots know that you have eight right. hours bottled to throttle and that's going to govern your time. Okay. Do they get tested before they go up uh, for the uh, I guess for the commercial airlines you get tested before you get behind the, the control panel or not? I, I at the time I started back in '89 with TWA, they had just started doing random testing. Okay. Uh, but I and so I don't know if it's every time now or if it's still random. Got it. Okay. So uh, some of the challenges you faced of being a, a woman, um, it, it, from what I read, it's pretty chauvin. It was during your training. It seemed like pretty chauvinistic boys club, and uh, you had to be on the receiving end of that. But uh, ultimately, because of your skill and your determination and your persistence and resilience, you you got through all of that. Tell us a little bit about that struggle and. And why do you think that is, or is it just like that in every other business? Uh, well, flying has always been a man's world, and there's lots of careers like that. But flying has always been a man's world, and in the 80s, it was a man's world. And uh, women learning to fly, there were we were there, but there weren't so many of us. And um, I'd have to say I didn't feel any chauvinism or any challenge from that uh, until... I got to the airlines, and that's when uh, I had really, I really had a um, some experience with chauvinism. There were some captains who did not want me in that cockpit mm-hmm. because you're a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think they felt threatened, or is just like just not being open-minded, or just old school nonsense, or what? It's a tough call. Uh, the they were. Did, they didn't want me there, but um, the reason was uh, I was in, I was intruding on their their sanctum, this is mm-hmm. their their little world, and and it always been men. Uh, so one you know, one example of that was uh, I was with one crew um, with TWA, 
And we flew in, and we were, I forget what airport we were, we were stopped at and waiting for another load of passengers to get on the airplane. This was a 727. And as we sat in the cockpit, the captain pulled out a penthouse magazine and opened it and was uh, making it obvious what he was looking at. And mm-hmm. right. you know, it was way, his way of saying, hey, I'm not going to change what I'm doing just because you're here. <laughs> wow. Could, I don't think he'd get away with that today, and, no. uh, and that, that's good. Let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's switch over to uh, your diagnosis with multiple sclerosis. I, the reason I want to talk about that is I, I am not super familiar with the specificity of the, the disease, and I'm not sure how many of our listeners are completely uh, you know, conversant in MS. Everybody hears about it, and we all know somebody who knows somebody who right. has been diagnosed. But I, I think everybody's always surprised, like, oh, I didn't realize it's that versus this. So tell us about your diagnosis. What is the disease and how, it's, how long ago this happened and how it's affected you and how it impacts your day-to-day life now? Well, Robert, um, my first episode, so to speak, with MS was back before I even flew. It was in 1984, the year I graduated from college. MS is an autoimmune disease, and we all hear about autoimmune diseases a lot these days. Uh, It's one of those types of diseases, and uh, there is no cure, and it's chronic. Um, In in the worst cases, you end up in a wheelchair quickly, and it's all downhill from there. I am from the majority group, which is relapsing, remitting. And uh, so I would have attacks, and then they would... I would be hospitalized and then they um, and it would go away and I'd start my life again, etc. But uh, the the first one attack I had was uh, an optic what they call an optic neuritis. I lost the vision in one of my eyes. Okay. And uh, I was actually in China when it happened. And uh, they in China I went to all kinds of doctors. They had no idea what, what they were looking at until I went to the embassy doctor and he said you need to go back to the states. So I was diagnosed, but I, at that time they just could call it uh, probable MS because uh, they didn't have an MRI, any MRIs at that time. Okay. And so uh, that was on my record, and yet I wanted to fly. Well, when I I wanted to fly for the Navy, that was my goal originally, and. Um, I got through all the flight tests, pilot tests, whatever, written stuff and physical. And then the subject of my medical history came up and they said, we can't take a chance on you. You're a liability. Right. So I went on my way and I was very disappointed, but I gathered up myself and readdressed the whole situation and went back to the local airport where I continued my, my uh, flying. Uh, it is. It's a difficult disease, but I promised myself when they told when they called it probable MS. I promised myself that I would not restrict myself in any way in my life. I'm going forward with all the things that I've ever, ever wanted to do, and there's a lot of things I've wanted to do, and still are a lot of things. Mm-hmm. In how it affects me now, mm-hmm. honestly, uh, about five years ago, I was having a, a, a real bad time with it, and um, I live in Arizona now went to a doctor and lo and behold, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Yikes. And so the question is, do I have Lyme? Do I have MS? MS, do I have both? Because they are very, very similar. Okay. 
Uh, do you, uh, in terms of uh, medication, do you take anything, you know, neuropath, you know, uh, natural, or is it all, uh, or you know, uh, pharmaceutical, or what do they prescribe for that, and what do you prescribe for it? Well, um, since for the MS, when uh, when I didn't know about the Lyme. The standard protocol was to, you go into the hospital when you have an attack, you stay there for seven days, and they pump hormones into you a gram a day. And, um, and that's a miserable experience. But uh, then I was diagnosed with Lyme, and it's been a, a lot of uh, trial and error with different types of treatments and protocols. Uh, yes, there's a pharmaceutical part involved, but there's also the naturopathic and uh, different mm-hmm. other okay. different of therapies. Got it. Now, uh, how long ago was that when you were, uh, when you had to stop flying? 1990. Okay. And since then you switched careers. Uh, tell us about the, the, the shift you made. Well, uh, when I lost my medical certificate and, and that was the end of my flying career, um, I decided I would go back to school and get a master's in East Asian stud- Chinese studies, essentially. And uh, that um, from there, uh, I, I went to Harvard, and I, it was a wonderful experience. My mentor told said to me, if you don't want to get a PhD, and I didn't really want to, he said, why don't you try translation? And um, so I did, and it was scant. That was in 1997. It was scant at the time, but... Sure. Now it's yeah. huge. Yeah. Now, uh, do you, it's Mandarin that you speak, or do you speak both uh, languages, or what? Just Mandarin. That's the standard Chinese. And what what uh, what have you learned about the Chinese culture? Uh, you know, when people we see the news and we just get fed what the media tells us and stuff. And not that many people have been to mainland China, if you will. Uh, you know, more and more, obviously. But I think it's still pretty mysterious for a lot of people. What is the one thing that you learned about China that uh, people would be most surprised to learn? Well, I think uh, that the Chinese are are uh, really good people and kind people. Some of the kindest, I think, that are, uh, in the world. And, you know, you watch the news and you get all of the uh, things from the talks and the president and all that stuff. Well, bottom line is you need to meet people one-on-one. And it's a wonderful country. It's a beautiful country. And the people are extremely welcoming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I have a friend, uh, 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 plenty of friends who are Chinese, and the, this one lady I know, uh, I said, well, what, what's it like over there? And she said, you know, it's, you, you would think it's very totalitarianist, but they, they can't, there's too many people, so they, it's really almost impossible to rule everybody because everybody's spread out. Obviously, there's the big cities, but it wasn't an agrarian culture, and there's so many people that it's hard to really set a, you know, that's why they set, you know, very simple rules and try to push it on people because how do you control a couple of billion people? So I think that's one of the misnomers where people like uh, in the United States say, oh, it's, it's this way, but it's, they don't really understand why it appears to be Sometimes things aren't what they appear to be. So, uh, you know, it's not a democracy, of course, but I think people, you know, don't realize the power of when you have that many people, a lot, you know, there is power there. You know, individuals collectively have more power than they think. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes. um, The the government is it is definitely a totalitarian state. uh, And that and that's that is the government, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is the only party and they've really done an amazing task of bringing the whole whole country under their 
envelope or under their umbrella. umbrella. So that's um, they in that sense, yes. And you don't you don't have as much freedom as you have here. You don't uh, as far as freedom of expression, um, and the courts are very strict. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, one other thing, you have one other part of your career, and that is you are a photographer. Um, what type of photography do you do? I do nature photography, and it's uh, started about ten years ago, and I really liked it. Went full, you know, off the deep end with it, like I seem to do with a lot of things. And uh, now I am. I've written a, two books, and uh, for instructional books for photography, and teach workshops. Great. Okay, so uh, Flying Alone, a memoir, Beth Ruggiero York, her wild path to becoming a pilot, it's, there's a lot of romance, there's a lot of partying, there's a lot of intrigue, and uh, there's some challenges too in uh, you know, nighttime flying and flying in storms and getting rerouted and this like that. And it's a, We didn't get into all of that, but it is a pretty amazing story, and all the time you had to deal with the MS, being a woman, all these other things, so I wanted to congratulate you on your perseverance and your being able to not only succeed in your goal of becoming a commercial pilot for TWA, but you also became a uh, Chinese uh, linguist and also a, you know, world-renowned photographer. So tell us, Beth, uh, where they can find, uh, our audience can find out more about you and uh, get the book. Thank you, Robert. Uh, I appreciate your saying that. The My website is www.beth RuggieroYork.com, and uh, that's R-U-G-G-I-E-R-O, and that's my author website. It will also take you. There's a tab for photography, and you can that'll take you to the photography website. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. Um, if you read my blog on my website, you'll get some further insights into the flying because that my book Flying Alone does not cover everything. Got it. Okay. Well, listen, uh, thank you very much, Beth, for being on Guys Guys Radio. Um, Interesting book, interesting life. You're an interesting person, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Robert. Robert Manny's The Guys Guys Guide to Love is a fast-paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Okay, a couple of interesting interviews there. Very different individuals, Dr. Jack Stern and Elizabeth Rogerio York. So what did we learn? Okay, from Dr. Jack, I think the main thing is Uh, He did share with us his rules for taking care of your back and then what to do if you do have back issues. My biggest takeaway was the fact that we have to take care of ourselves, you know, before we get to the doctor, before we have a problem, before the problem becomes chronic. We really have to pay attention, watch where we're going and really pay attention and be focused on our choices in terms of uh, what we consume, whether it's uh, food, beverage, uh, fitness, even media, things that make us feel healthy and keep us vibrant. And, you know, then when we get to the doctor, we should be in the best shape we could possibly be in based on everything that we could do about it. And, you know, when you take, it's like your car. If you take care of your car, if you change the oil, you change the spark bugs, you rotate the tires, whatever, 
you have a better chance of that car lasting a long time. It's the same with the human body. If you just ignore it and you keep partying the way you may have, like I did in college and, and in my 20s, you know, you're not going to last that long. But uh, the, the main thing really is take care of yourself before you get to the doctor and then pick up uh, Dr. Stern's book. I think it has a lot of helpful tips and he does, you know, we only talked about it for a short period of time. He does a deep dive on a lot of the information. The other thing we learned was from uh, Elizabeth Rogerio York is that, you know, anybody, any human being, we can overcome any obstacles if we have the right intention and the right uh, heart purpose and uh, the right service in mind. And she overcame a very bro culture uh, commercial airline industry, in her opinion, uh, which came across in the book with the pilots. Very, you know, it's been a guy's club for a long time. And she managed to uh, claw her way up through that, get her license, work in a very various different positions until she started flying big commercial airliners. And then she was diagnosed with MS, and she became very well known in uh, as a Chinese inter- uh, Chinese scholar, and also as a nature photographer. So people can reinvent themselves. You can do anything. So it's Guys Guys Radio. We're on every Wednesday evening on KCA Radio here in Southern Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 AM. The show rebroadcasts on Sundays at 2 p.m. Pacific time. The show also downloads every, posts, if you will, every Thursday morning right after the broadcast and we're on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, slash iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blog Talk Radio, CastBox. You can stream it on KCAA. So you can listen live, you can download, you can stream wherever you consume your podcast. Guys, Guys Radio, I love doing a show. We're approaching our 400th show. I hope you'll stay with us as we go to 500 because the show's getting better and better and better. And as always, I always like to say, Guys, Guys, finish first.